Chapter Thirteen of the Harapeth Property by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Adjourned. Ever since Triffitt had made his lucky scoop in connection with the Harapath mystery, he had lived in a state of temporary glory, with strong hopes of making it a permanent one. Up to the morning of the event, which gave him a whole column of the Argus, big type, extra leaded, Triffitt, as a junior reporter, had never accomplished anything notable. As he was fond of remarking, he never got a chance. Police court cases, county court cases, fires, coroner's inquests, street accidents. They were all exciting enough, no doubt, to the people actively concerned in them. But you never got more than twenty or thirty lines out of their details. However, the chance did come that morning, and Triffitt made the most of it, and the news editor, a highly exacting and particular person, blessed him moderately, and told him, moreover, that he could call the Harapath case his own. Thenceforth, Triffitt ate, drank, smoked, and slept with the case. It was the only thing he ever thought of. But at half-past one on the afternoon of the third day, after what one may call the actual start of the affair, Triffitt sat in a dark corner of a tea-shop in Kensington High Street, munching ham sandwiches, sipping coffee, and thinking lugubriously, if not despairingly. He had spent two and a half hours in the adjacent coroner's court, listening to all that was said in evidence about the death of Jacob Harapith, and he had heard absolutely nothing that was not quite well known to him when the coroner took his seat, inspected his jurymen, and opened the inquiry. Two and a half hours, at the end of which the court adjourned for lunch, and the affair was just as mysterious as ever, and not a single witness had said a new thing, not a single fresh fact had been brought forward out of which a fellow could make good, rousing copy. Rotten, mumbled Triffin into his cup, extra rotten somebody's keeping something back that's about it just then another young gentleman came into the alcove in which triffin sat disconsolate a pink-cheeked young gentleman who affected a tweed suit of loud checks and a sporting coat and wore a bit of feather in the band of his rakish billycock triffitt recognized him as a fellow scribe one of the youthful bloods of an opposition journal, whom he sometimes met on the cricket field. He also remembered that he had caught a glimpse of him in the coroner's court, and he hastened to make room for him. "'Hello,' said Triffitt. "'What ho!' responded the pink young gentleman. He beckoned knowingly to a waitress, and looked at her narrowly when she came. "'Got such thing as a muffin?' he asked. "'Muffin, sir? Yes, sir,' replied the waitress. "'Fresh muffins.' "'Pick me out a nice, plump, newly-killed muffin,' commanded Triffitt's companion. "'Leave it in its natural state, that is to say, cold. Split it in half, and put between the halves a thick, generous slice of that cold ham I see on your counter, and produce it with a pot of fresh and very hot china tea. That's all.' "'Plenty, too, I should think,' muttered Triffitt, fond of indigestion, Carver.' "'I don't think you've ever been in Yorkshire, have you, Triffitt?' asked Mr. Carver, 
settling himself comfortably. You haven't had that pleasure. Well, if you ever gone to a football match on a Saturday afternoon in a Yorkshire factory district, you'd have seen men selling muffin and ham sandwiches. Fact. And I give you my word that if you want something to fill you up during the day, something to tide over the weary weight between breakfast and dinner, a fat muffin with a thick slice of ham is the best thing I know. I don't want anything to fill me up, grunted Triffitt. I want something cheering at present. I've been listening with all my ears for something new in that blessed Herapath case all the morning, and, as you know, there's been nothing. Think so, said Carver. Hmm. I should have said there was a good deal now. Nothing that I didn't know anyway, remarked Triffitt. I got all that first thing. I was on the spot first. Oh, it was you, was it? said Carver, with professional indifference. Lucky man. So, you've only been hearing? A repetition of what I heard before, answered Triffitt. I knew all that evidence before I went into court. Caretaker, police, folks from Portman Square, doctor, all the lot. And I guess there'll be nothing this afternoon. The thing'll be adjourned. Oh, that's of course, assented Carver, attacking his muffin sandwich. There'll be more than one adjournment of this particular inquest, Triffitt. But aren't you struck by one or two points? I'm struck by this, replied Triffitt. If what the police surgeon says, and you noticed how positive he was about it, if what he says is true, that old Herapath was shot and died at, or just before, certainly not after, he positively asserted, twelve o'clock midnight, it was not he who went to Portman Square. That, of course, is obvious, said Carver, and it's just as obvious that whoever went to Portman Square returned from Portman Square to the office, huh? That hasn't quite struck me, replied Triffitt. How is it just as obvious? Because whoever went to Portman Square went in old Herapath's fur-trimmed coat and his slouch hat, and the fur-trimmed coat and slouch hat were found in the office, answered Carver. It's absolutely plain that I put it like this. The murderer, having settled his man, put on his victim's coat and hat, took his keys, went to Portman Square, did something there, went back to the office, left the coat and hat, and hooked it. That, my son, is a dead certainty. There's been little, if anything, made of all that before the coroner. And it's my impression, Triffitt, that somebody, somebody official, mind you, is keeping something back. Now, continued Carver, dropping his voice to a confidential whisper, I'm only doing a plain report of this affair for our organ of light and leading. But I've read it up pretty well, and there are two things I want to know, and I'll tell you what, Triffitt. If you like to go in with me and find them out, two can always work better than one. I'm game. What are the two things? asked Triffitt cautiously. Perhaps I've got them in mind also. The first's this, replied Carver. Somebody, some taxicab driver or somebody of that sort, must have brought the man who personated old Jacob Herapath back to, or to the neighborhood of, the office that morning. How is it that somebody hasn't been discovered? You made a point of asking for him in the Argus. Do you know what I think? I think he has been discovered, and he's being kept out of the way. That's point one. 
Good, muttered Triffitt. And point two? Point two is, where is the man who came out of the House of Commons with Jacob Herapath that night, the man that the coachman Mountain described? In my opinion, asserted Carver, I believe that man's been found too, and he's being kept back. Good again, said Triffitt. It's likely. Well, I've a point. You heard the evidence about old Herapath's keys. Yes. Well, where's the key of that safe that he rented at the safe deposit place? That young secretary, Selwood, swore that it was on the little bunch the day of the murder, that he saw it there at three o'clock in the afternoon. What did Jacob Herapath do with it between then and the time of the murder? Yes, that's a great point, asserted Carver. We may hear something of that this afternoon, perhaps of all these points. But when they went back to the densely crowded court, it was only to find that they, and an expectant public, were going to hear nothing more for that time. As soon as the court reassembled, there was some putting together of heads on the part of the legal gentleman and the coroner. There were whisperings and consultations and noddings and veiled hints, palpable enough to everybody with half an eye. Then the coroner announced that no further evidence would be taken that day, and adjourned the inquest for a fortnight. Some of the public, as half contrived to squeeze into the court, went out murmuring, and Triffitt and Carver went out too, and exchanged meaning glances. Just what I expected, said Carver. I reckon the police are at the bottom of all that. A fortnight today, we'll be hearing something good, something sensational. I don't want to wait until a fortnight today, growled Triffitt. I want some good hot stuff now. Then you'll have to find it yourself very soon, remarked Carver. Take my tip. You'll get nothing from the police. Triffitt was well aware of that. He had talked to two or three police officials and detectives that morning, and had found them singularly elusive and uncommunicative. One of them was the police inspector who had been called to the Herapath estate office on the discovery of the murder. Another was the detective who had accompanied him. Since the murder, Triffitt had kept in touch with these two, and had found them affable and ready to talk. Now, however, they had suddenly curled up into a dry taciturnity, and there was nothing to be got out of them. "'Tell you what it is,' he said suddenly. "'We'll have to go for the police.' "'How go for the police?' asked Carver doubtfully. "'Throw out some careful hints that the police know more than they'll tell at present,' answered Triffitt importantly. "'That's what I shall do, anyhow. I've got carte blanche on our rag.' and I'll make the public ear itch and twitch by breakfast time tomorrow morning. And after that, my boy, you and I'll put our heads together, as you suggest, and see if we can't do a bit of detective work of our own. See you tomorrow at the usual in Fleet Street. Then Triffitt went along to the Argus office and spent the rest of the afternoon in writing up a breezy and brilliant column about the scene at the inquest intended to preface the ordinary detailed report. He wound it up with an artfully concocted paragraph in which he threw out mainly thinly veiled hints and innuendos to the effect that the police were in possession of strange and sensational information, and that ere long such a dramatic turn would be given 
to this Herapath mystery, that the whole town would seethe with excitement. He preened his feathers gaily over this accomplishment, and woke earlier than usual next morning, on purpose to go out before breakfast and buy the Argus. But when he opened that enterprising journal, he found that his column had been woefully cut down, and that the paragraph over which he had so exercised his brains was omitted altogether. Triffitt had small appetite for breakfast that morning, and he went early to the office and made haste to put himself in the way of the news editor, who grinned at sight of him. "'Look here, Master Triffitt,' said the news editor, "'there's such a thing as being too smart and too previous. I was a bit doubtful about your prognostications last night, and I rang up the C.I.D. about them. "'Don't do it again, my son. You mean well, but the police know their jobs better than you do.' If they want to keep quiet for a while in this matter, they've good reasons for it. So, no more hints, see? So they do know something, muttered Triffitt sourly. Then I was right, after all. You'll be wrong, after all, if you stick your nose where it isn't wanted, said the news editor. Just chuck the inspired profit game for a while, will you? Keep to the mere facts. You'll be alarming the wrong people if you don't. Off you go now and do old Herapath's funeral. It's at noon at Kensal Green. There'll be some of his fellow MPs there, and so on. Get their names. Make a nice respectable thing of it on conventional lines. And no fireworks. This thing's to lie low at present. Triffitt went off to Kensal Green, scowling and cogitating. Of course the police knew something, but what? What they knew would doubtless come out in time, but Triffitt had a strong desire to be beforehand with them. In spite of the douche of cold water which the news editor had just administered, Triffitt knew his Argus. If he could phantom the Herapath mystery in such a fashion as to make a real great smashing, all-absorbing feature of a sensational discovery, the Argus would throw police precaution and official entreaties to the first wind that swept down Fleet Street. No, he, Triffitt, was not to be balked. He would do his duty. He would go and see Jacob Herapath's buried. But he would also continue his attempt to find out how it was that that burial came to be. And as he turned into the cemetery and stared at its weird collection of Christian and pagan monuments, he breathed a fervent prayer to the goddess of chance and fortune to give him what he called Another look in. End of chapter 13